Open your Bibles today to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you've been here in the weeks past, you know that I've been preaching a series called Great New Testament Text, and there are many. I thought I would maybe quit by Easter, but maybe we'll, we'll continue on for a while longer because there's other ones that I would like us to explore. You know, over the years in the pastorate, I've had individuals tell me that there are no scriptural precedents in the Word of God directing believers to pray for the lost. Now, granted, there is no command that says, thou shalt pray for the lost to be saved, okay? But to take that position would be unscriptural, would be wrong thinking. That view disregards our text that we're going to look at this morning, as well as others, such as Matthew 9, 37, and 38, where Jesus says, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would thrust forth laborers into his harvest field. Of course, what are the laborers? We're praying to God that he would send laborers to bring the gospel to people. There are texts that challenge us about praying for the lost. Paul informs us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that evangelistic praying should be of the highest priority. Notice the first verse. He says, therefore, I exhort first of all. That's talking about in priority. This is the way you're praying and the first things that you should pray for. Let's go ahead and read it. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplication, prayer, intercessions and giving of thanks be made to all men four types of praying that he mentions here and who are to be praying for for kings are all kings saved certainly not we want them to be saved are all presidents saved certainly not or prime ministers certainly not we know they're not all saved so we pray for their salvation we pray for their rule over us for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life as christians when the godly are in charge it's good for us because we can worship and we can evangelize when the ungodly are in charge they try to shut down christian freedoms like we see in myanmar etc that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God and our Savior. For who desires, notice this verse, who desires men to be saved. And later on it says that all men would be saved. So we're to be praying that men would be saved. For he desires that, that all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And here we, we come to our text. Verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. We are to pray for the lost because we have a Savior who's concerned about the lost. And it's true for Christians, really sincere Christians have a desire to see their family, their friends, their loved ones come to Christ. We have a natural inclination to pray for those who do not know the Lord. That's why he says, first of all, we're going to pray. It's going to be a natural. So here in this pastoral epistle, dealing with public ministry and public prayer, really, right in the middle of this chapter, chapter 2, is one of our great New Testament texts. And I've entitled my message, Jesus, Mediator Between God and Man. First of all, 
the peculiarity of the Godhead. It says there is one God. That's monotheism. Monothe- mono meaning one, theism meaning God. So we have one God. There is one God. And monotheism was one of the distinguishing marks of the ancient Jewish people. It distinguished them from all the other cultures, all the other races of people on earth. They had a plurality of gods. They had the sun god, and they had the god of fertility, and the ocean god, and the gods of the hills, and the gods of the valleys. They had a multitude, literally a pantheon of gods. Israel said there's only one god. Matter of fact, it simplified life for an Israelite because they only had to concern themselves with pleasing one God, not like a plate spinner at the circus, you know, getting the plate spinning on this stick and then another one over here on this stick. They had to please a multitude of gods, and they wore out trying to do it. Lots of times they gave up on trying to do it. But the Israelites only had, because they were monotheistic, they only had to please the one God. So monotheism distinguished the Jews from the rest of the pagans, but monotheism, of course, is one of the central truths of the New Testament. We build upon the Old Testament. And this truth runs counter to the pluralistic religiosity of our day today. It certainly does, which rejects the concept of an exclusive God and absolute truth. Our world today, our culture today, rejects the idea that there is only one God, an exclusive God, and absolute truth. It doesn't want that. It doesn't buy into that. Authoritative truth. We are taught by the spirit of our age that each of the gods of the Christians, the Jews, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, are to be considered equally valid. And don't say that your God is the only God or your God is better than the other gods. If that were true, there would be many ways to achieve salvation. You can go to any one of the routes. All roads lead to the top of the mountain. All the roads lead to heaven. That's not true. We don't believe that. And it would remove any need for biblical evangelism. If all roads, if everybody's eventually going to get there, why bother? Why evangelize? But there is only one true God. And the Bible says right here, and he desires for men to be saved. And so prayer for the lost is essential. Prayer for the lost is essential. And evangelism of the lost is critical. Because without giving the gospel, they're lost for eternity. The Bible says, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. Couldn't be clearer. There is no other person. There's no other name. There's no other way to be saved but through Jesus Christ. He is God and he's exclusively God. It says there is one God. Although we cannot grasp it and we can't sufficiently explain it, the Bible teaches that there are three persons within the Godhead, and yet there's only one God. Three persons, and yet there's only one God. And we try to illustrate it sometimes to children, sometimes to adults, of ways to try to grasp it, but they're, they're, they're lacking. They're insufficient. You know, we can talk about water, you know, in a solid state, 
it's ice, it's solid and liquid state, we drink it. And when it's boiled, it's steam and it's in a gaseous state. That's water, but it's in three different states. Or we talk about the egg, you know, there's a shell and there's the white and then there's the yolk. Or sometimes we say, well, I'm a, I'm a father, I'm also a son, and yet I'm a husband. I'm just doing different roles. But all of those are insufficient in describing the fact that there are three persons in the God. We may not comprehend, I can tell you this, we will not comprehend the Trinity, but we accept it because the Bible teaches it. The peculiarity of the Godhead, it says there is one God. Notice the phrase goes on, the exclusivity of the mediator. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. It's the Greek word mediates. Matter of fact, it's translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Job says, oh, if there were an umpire, it's the same Greek word. If there were an umpire that could go between man and God, but there is not, he said. Of course, he was living 3,000 years before the time of Christ. So it's the idea of an umpire, a mediator, a go-between. There is one God, and the Bible answers in the New Testament, and there's one go-between between God the Father and sinful mankind, and that's Jesus Christ. The singularity of Christ's role as a mediator fundamentally distinguishes Christianity from Judaism. Matter of fact, Judaism rejects Christianity because they say, well, you believe in three gods. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God and three persons in the Godhead. And there is a difference. It differentiates us from Judaism. A mediator is one who intervenes between parties to reconcile and bring peace. There's a dictionary definition. One goes between, intervenes between parties to reconcile them and bring them to peace. Thayer, the commentator, says, Christ interposed through his death and restored harmony between God and man. Through Christ's death, he really did his great mediatorial work of reconciling God and man, bringing them together, parties that were separated, parties that were not speaking. Since there is only one mediator, then it's beholden to us as Christians to make that mediator known to those who don't know him, to tell the story of Christ. We cannot approach God thinking that there are other mediators whether they be angels, whether there be saints, whether it be the Virgin Mary. I grew up in a denomination that taught that, that we prayed to the saints. I always wore a St. Christopher medal. Matter of fact, when I got saved as a college student, I took that to a jeweler and I said, I want you to grind off the picture of St. Christopher that I've wore on my neck for I don't know how long, 10 years or whatever, and just put a date on it, the date I got saved. And he said, well, I can sell you a blank one. It's going to cost you more for me to grind that off and to give it to you and put those dates in it. I'll just sell you a blank one and put the dates on it. I said, no, it has some significance for me because I'm no longer trusting in St. Christopher. I'm no longer trusting in the Virgin Mary. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And that's the date that I got saved. I didn't say it quite like that, of course. I just explained to him that it had significance for me. And it does. There's only one mediator between God and man. And there's only one proper 
only one biblical mediator. It's only through Christ that, that men can draw nigh to God. And the preceding clause makes it clear. To say that Christ is one amongst many mediators is to say that God is one God amongst many gods. But the Bible says just the opposite. There's one God and there's one mediator. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the God-man was the only one capable of performing the work of mediator, reconciling a holy God to sinful men. You know, to be of any use, a bridge that spans a chasm or river must be solidly anchored to both sides or the bridge is going to cave. Jesus was solidly anchored to heaven, to perfection, to sinlessness because he was God. And then he anchored his other foot on the other side to earth, to man. He was the God-man. And it's only through Jesus Christ, the bridge between God and man, that man can cross from this world into the next world, accepting what he did on the cross. He is the mediator. He is the bridge. He is the go-between. He is the umpire between God and man. He spanned the deep and wide chasm between heaven and earth that separated us from God. And this passage makes it clear Man's reconciliation to God comes through a specific person, a person, not our works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he washed us and regenerated us. So it's not by anything that we could do, but it's by the bridge. It's by the mediator. So I have to ask you, have you been reconciled to God? Jesus is the great reconciler. He's the great mediator. Have you allowed him to interpose himself in your life and getting you right with God by accepting what he did on the cross? Are your sins permanently disposed of through Christ's atonement? There's a lot of things that are contaminants in our world. Sometimes we don't know what to do with nuclear waste. We bury it deep in the ground or send it off somewhere. There's a lot of things that we don't like to deal with. And so we hire somebody to deal with it. This week I missed the trash man. They sent out, because of the snowstorm, and said, uh, trash is going to be one day late. And then they sent out another note to say it's going to be two days late. So I didn't put my trash can out. Matter of fact, no, almost nobody on my street did. But he came a day early. And my trash can happened to be full. It's usually not full, but it happened to be full. And I'm looking at this and saying, I missed the trash man. What am I going to do? can't dispose of this myself, this waste, this contaminant. Jesus takes the contaminant, the worst contaminant in the world, which is a sinful condition that mankind has, and he took it upon himself, and he disposed of it. He put it under the blood. He buried it in the deepest ocean. He eliminated it from our life. He dealt with it, and we can thank God for that. So have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb who washes away our sin? Third, the availability of the ransom. It says Christ Jesus. It goes on to say there is, there is 
one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And it goes on to say, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified, to be preached about, to be proclaimed, to be made known to all men in due time. The availability of the ransom. Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. Ransom is a rich theological term. It describes Christ's substitutionary death for us. His purchase of our salvation. This is not the common word for ransom. The common word for ransom, which you can understand in biblical times and even in modern times, it was used widely because ransom means to pay the debt and to free a slave. And throughout the history of mankind, there's always been slaves. The ransom is paying the purchase price for someone. And so Jesus here is the ransom, but this is not the common word for ransom, lutron. It's got a prefix before, it's antilutron. Anta means instead of. It can mean in place of or instead of or against, like the Antichrist comes and he comes in the place of Christ. He tries to present himself as God. He is the Antichrist. He's trying to take the place of, in lieu of. It's used only here in the New Testament, antilutron, meaning that, that Jesus not only was the ransom, he was the ransom for us. He put himself as the ransom for us, the antilutron, a rich theological idea. Christ did not merely pay a ransom to free us. He substituted himself and became the ransom, the victim of punishment in our place, the victim of God's wrath that he would pour out on us. And because he purchased us from slavery, now we belong to him. We're his possession. That's the whole idea. He purchased us. You purchase a car, it's your car. You purchase a house, it's your house. You purchase some clothes, it's your clothes. You can do with them whatever you want. Jesus Christ purchased us. We belong to him. We are his possession. Now we live for him. What does it say? A ransom for all. Now listen to what I have to say so we all understand this together. A ransom for all is a comment about the sufficiency of the atonement, not its efficacy. I'm not trying to split hairs, but I'm trying to be precise, theologically precise. A ransom for all is a comment on the sufficiency of the atonement, not on its efficacy. The well-known epigram says, Christ's death was sufficient for all, but efficient for only for those who believe. That's an accurate theological statement. Let me read it again. Christ's death was sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who believe. In other words, Christ's atonement is unlimited as to its sufficiency, but limited as to its application. We get that. In other words, when Christ died, his blood that was shed is powerful enough to save of millions and millions of millions more. Even if the world goes on for hundreds and hundreds more years, it isn't like, okay, Christ's blood, it covered up to 8 billion people and we've reached that limit. Nobody else can be saved. It's sufficient to save everyone, but it's efficient only for those who believe. In other words, if you don't apply it, if you don't accept it, you don't grasp it, and you don't take Christ as your mediator, 
it does you no good. Even though it could save you because you don't apply it, it does you no good individually. It's sufficient for all, efficient for only those who believe. In other words, Christ's atonement is unlimited as to its sufficiency, but limited as to its application. Because the Bible doesn't teach universalism. The Bible doesn't teach that Christ died and all men are going to be saved because his blood was sufficient for all. It doesn't teach that. Everybody isn't going to be saved because everybody won't believe. Everybody won't repent and turn to Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. Everyone could be saved, but not everyone will believe. And they can't believe if they don't hear. How shall they hear without a preacher? And that's not talking about what I'm doing here today in a public setting. It's talking about those who evangelize. How will they hear? How will they be saved if we don't go, Romans says. The gospel should be preached, therefore, indiscriminately. Because we don't know who the elect are. We don't know who are going to respond. We don't know who are going to be saved. So the Bible tells us to preach the gospel indiscriminately because we don't know. God does. That's why it says in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's kind of a broad term. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We understand it's talking about human beings. Eternal life and divine mercy are offered freely to all. Listen to Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit and the bride say, come. God is appealing to mankind. He's done everything necessary for mankind to be saved. He sent a son to die on the cross. He rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death. And he says, come. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts who wants eternal life, who wants that salve for their soul, who wants to have settled their salvation. He says, come, whoever thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Christ is set forth. Christ is proclaimed as the Savior for everyone to believe, everyone to accept him. First Timothy 4.10, right here in this book, a couple chapters later, it says, we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. Now, if you just read that without really thinking about it or understanding what the verse is saying, it can be a little confusing. We trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. So he says, we trust in the living God who is potentially the Savior of all men. And especially or actually for those who believe. That's what it says. Christ Jesus is potentially the Savior for all. It isn't that his blood is insufficient to save every person that's ever been born. But it's only actually sufficient or applied, efficient for those who are willing to say, God, I'm a sinner and I can't get there on my own and I need you as my Savior. We are sinful and defiled. Christ is holy and pure. We are helpless in our sins. He is mighty to save us. From our sins. We are proud and boastful. He meekly invites us to come. We are lawbreakers. Jesus fulfilled every detail of God's law. His glory is greater than our shame. His grace is greater than all our sin. Through Christ, we have the biblical promise where sin abounds, 
grace did much more abound. A medicine or a vaccine or a cure for a disease may be put on the market as the sole remedy for a terminal condition, but that doesn't mean every infected person will believe in and obtain the medicine. Even if billions and billions more of sinful people are born, Christ's death is sufficient to cover the sins of all. How graphically the atoning work of Christ reveals the heart of God. This puts on full display the heart of God for the salvation of sinners. And so as we observe the Lord's table today, we are hearkening back in our minds to the cross and what he did for us. And it should bubble up within our souls. It should overflow our spiritual cups and say, oh God, what you've done in my behalf is overwhelming to me. Thank you. I can't thank you enough for what you've done.